KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, astrosex and heat death. In addition, we'll be joined by Michael Belfiore. He'll talk about privatized spaceflight. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Back to Frank Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty high, actually. <laughs> Pretty high. Uh, hopefully high on life. At least I'm still in orbit. <laughs> I'm just waiting to see what you're orbiting around. <laughs> so you've seen Moonraker, right? I have seen Moonraker. And uh, the uh, parting shot is Mr. Bond and the lady one more time around the world, right? <laughs> Well, I've never been a big fan of Roger Moore, but he certainly did get himself into interesting situations. Yes. So, so you know, earlier this year there was that whole incident with Lisa Nowak <laughs> when the... Uh... Yes, yes, of course. How can we forget the diaper astronaut? <laughs> I need to get myself a pair of those uh, astronaut diapers. Is it on eBay? I don't know. I mean, I, I need some. Just because I'm lazy. You know, this raises the interesting question. What is NASA's policy on sex in space? <laughs> Turns out there never has been a policy. Oh, okay. Have they, have they started to develop one? Some former astronauts are urging it. One of them, Alex Dunlop, says it never came out during training because at the time they're just so focused on the job. Mm. But if you can imagine missions which are more than just a few days long and a few weeks long, feelings can develop between astronauts and you got to prepare for contingency plans. This is true. So one interesting question is uh, where do you draw the line between being invasive in someone's life and the well-being of the mission. So until these issues are discussed, I think NASA and other space agencies have to think hard about these questions. Other ethical dilemmas include what happens if there's not enough oxygen. For example, someone has a broken leg or burst appendix and they need extra resources to heal them. Then there's a moral dilemma. Is someone going to be sacrificed? I mean, I'm surprised that these issues haven't come up before. This is a cool article. It was a recent edition of Popular Mechanics. Well, I know one way these astronauts can avoid certain feelings for each other. Wait for the heat death of the universe. That's pretty mind-numbing. You probably have to wait a long, long, long time. <laughs> Researchers have actually been wondering what's actually going to happen in the very long-term future of the universe. Well, everything's going to come back in a big crunch, right? Well, that was the question. Big crunch, uh, big expansion, or stable equilibrium? Uh -huh. <laughs> and right now it looks like it's the big expansion where dark matter is pushing everything apart. Oh, because of this, matter will actually stick around longer than energy. Uh -huh. But that would be kind of a bad thing because a lot of the radiative energy heat that life needs, for example, to survive right. won't be around and usable. And as a result, even though it's possible that the substances that could give rise to life, they won't have anything to run them. So that means that there's no hope for me of being reborn in the next universe. <laughs> well, just be reborn in a universe where energy is plentiful and everybody's happy. We'll be light beings. Yes. Uh, this was a very interesting work. It was research that was done by physicists Lawrence Krauss of Case Western Reserve University and Robert Scherer of Vanderbilt. Calculations published in a recent edition of Physical Review D. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. 
Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Michael Belfiore will join us to discuss privatized spaceflight. So stay tuned. the Grok Science Show. Well, space may indeed be the final frontier, but it's certainly taken a long time to explore it. However, with the more recent entry of private enterprise into the field of space exploration, the final frontier may yet yield ground to human explorers. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Michael Biafori. Mr. Belfiore is a technology writer whose work has appeared frequently in Popular Science, Wired.com, and numerous other outlets. His new book, Rocketeers, How a Visionary Band of Business Leaders, Engineers, and Pilots is Boldly Privatizing Space, is now available and discusses this issue. Mr. Belfiore, thank you very much for joining us on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Good day. Thanks for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure, and I think this is certainly a very fascinating book. For those people who are growing up in the space age, you know, the promise was that of colonies on moon and space stations in orbit. Why haven't we got there? Well, you have to look at the history of how we got to the moon in the first place. It was a big government program set in motion by the Russians getting to space before the United States. And that became a national issue, and lots of resources were marshaled to get us to the moon very, very quickly. It only took, you know, less than 10 years from Kennedy's famous speech about how we have to get there within the decade. After that happened, though, the infrastructure for doing this wonderful stuff got dismantled because the original purpose had been served, which was get to the moon before the Russians. And NASA and the National Space Program in general lost its direction at that point. I see. And since that time, it's floundering for a mission, so to speak? I think it's a good way to characterize it. We got the space shuttle that was originally conceived to serve as space stations. It was Von Braun's vision that we would build space stations first. You know, he's the architect of the moon program. His vision was to build space stations that we would then use as waypoints on the way to Mars and other places. And the space shuttle was envisioned as a way to do that, to service space stations and build them. Well, the space shuttle was many years late, and a lot of design compromises were made because of budget issues. And came late to the party and didn't have a station to service, so it just kind of kept going in orbit. We finally got stations, and they, too, lacked a clear purpose. And that's kind of where we've been since the early 70s. What's the status of current space station uh, collaboration with Russia? That seems to me to lack a clear purpose. We understand Mm -hmm. how to live in zero gravity for extended periods. We understand about muscle deterioration and bone deterioration while you're in orbit. Okay, now let's get on with it, right? (laughs) What what are we going to do with this information? We don't seem to be terribly clear on that. And that's where the private space industry comes in. A lot of people got frustrated with waiting for things to happen in the government arena. So one of these folks in particular, a guy named Peter Diamandis, started a prize. He figured, well, I need to jumpstart something in the commercial sector that'll get us off the ground, so to speak. He looked to the past. He looked at the prize that Charles Lindbergh won in 1927 by flying across the Atlantic Ocean. Most people don't remember it. He flew across the ocean to win a prize. So Diamandis said, let me start a space prize. It was called the X Prize. $10 million if you could get to space without government help. And in 2004... A company won that prize. It was Scaled Composites in Mojave, California, and their ship was called Spaceship One. They won the $10 million prize and proved that the government need not be involved in space flight. In fact, it can be done by private investors without as nearly as much money as has been assumed up to that point. And now some really exciting things have been happening in the private sector since then. 
Uh, I'm curious if you talk about Burt Rutan, I guess, who was the uh, driving force behind Spaceship One. Burt Rutan was an amazing aviation pioneer. He started professional career as a, a test flight engineer in the Air Force way back in the 60s, and he got bored doing that. He started building a fighter plane out of plywood in his garage, if you can believe that. He wanted to build something that he could fly himself that would have a lot of the same characteristics as a fighter plane. Maybe not go as fast, but could do a lot of the maneuvers and things. He built this thing and got a lot of attention for it and found there was a market for other people who wanted to build their own fighter planes in their garages. So he started selling plans, and that's how he launched his business, which eventually led to scaled composites. And along the way, he had a dream of building a spaceship, not in his garage, but maybe in his small company, using a lot of the same techniques. And that's when the XPRIZE came along, offered the prize money for doing this, and he thought that was a great opportunity, so he found Paul Allen. This is all described in my book, Rocketeers, a fascinating story. Paul Allen, who co-founded Microsoft, chipped in the financing for it. And this spaceship bears a lot of similarity to Burt Rutan's early designs built in garages. It's handmade, it's fairly small, it's about the size of a minivan with wings on it, with a rocket engine in the back. They were able to keep their team small. That was a very important aspect of it. There were only something like 135 employees at Scaled Composite at the time, and they were working on many other projects. So only, but the estimate I heard is about 25 people actually built Spaceship One. It's extraordinary. And not only did Spaceship One get to space for the first time ever without government help, it also was the first civilian craft to break the sound barrier. So it was a lot of really exciting firsts. But with a lot of references to the past, the early space planes that NASA was working on, the Air Force was working on before the Apollo program came along were very much along these lines. You'd have an airplane with a rocket engine in the back, and the idea was we'd keep building these things bigger and faster, and they could go farther out. And that plan was sort of abandoned when we had to get to the moon in a hurry. So Bert Rutan went back to those early days of X-planes with Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. Same idea. He's got a, an airplane, stick and rudder controls, no computer controls, and, and Spaceship One is exactly the same way. It's just a really good pilot hanging on for dear life with a stick and two feet on the rudders, and it's very exciting uh, to think about that. Spaceship One folks learned a lot from that. In fact, they got one of the engineers from the X-15, which a lot of people don't remember was America's first spacecraft uh, before the Mercury and Gemini and, and Apollo ships. It was a rocket plane that launched from a, a carrier plane. B-52 bomber would carry this thing up to high altitude, drop it. The pilot would light the rocket engine and, and make a run for space. And so Bert Rutan and his team, they took that idea and put it into a hand-built ship, and they got one of these engineers from the X-15 to work on it. And a big part of my book is dedicated to that program for obvious reasons. And, and I really tried to get into the cockpit during those mm -hmm. test flights and try to convey some of the experience of what it's like to fly that thing and, and what it'll be like for us when we get to go on there, too. Uh, I think one of the uh, interesting technological innovations of uh, Spaceship One was their reentry feathering mechanism. That was Bert Rutan's idea, and, and I discovered that went back to his model airplane days when he was in high school, and even before, they, they would fly these planes that, that didn't have good radio control back then. So what they would do is they'd launch their airplanes, these model planes, and then they'd have something called a dethermalizer that would cause the back end of the plane to flip up and create a high drag configuration. The thing would just drop to the ground wherever it happened to be so it wouldn't go sailing off into the distance and, and not be able to retrieve it. So he, he took that idea and put it on a full-sized manned ship. And so it's extraordinary. The whole back end of the craft hinges upward while it's in space. 
And Brian Binney, one of the pilots on this thing, he called it the wings of the angel. This is a saving grace. It's going to save this thing from burning up on reentry. And it just comes down like a badminton shuttlecock with those twin tail booms sticking up and catching the air. And then once they get down to a low enough altitude, then they bring the feather back down, lock it into place, and then glide it back to the airport. Brian Binney talked about how it was like stepping over the threshold into another world. And that's certainly the experience that a lot of people want to have right now. And that's why they're paying money to fly Spaceship Two, which is under construction right now. And it's going to be flown by Virgin Galactic, <laughs> the subsidiary of Virgin Atlantic Airlines. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about uh, Richard Branson stepping in there to fund this sort of enterprise. But Branson's a great example of the new breed, if you will, of entrepreneurs that saw Spaceship One, got inspired by it, and realized it didn't cost billions of dollars to get into space, that they could do it with whatever resources they had, which admittedly are still a lot for one person, but not a lot when you're talking about a space program. So he saw Spaceship One's first flight, June 21st, 2004 decided right away he wanted to get in on that. And by the end of 2004, after the two XPRIZE flights had been flown, Branson was right there in the control room, almost literally waiting with checkbook in hand for a successful flight so he could sign over development money, get Spaceship Two going right away. And Branson has big plans. He's not stopping at suborbital flight like Spaceship One or Spaceship Two. He wants to go eventually all the way to orbit and maybe even beyond. And there are entrepreneurs working on that aspect of things right now as well. Yeah, you mentioned a few others in, in your book, uh, for example, Elon Musk and uh, Robert Bigelow. Sure, Elon Musk. It's another very interesting story, and when I go into a lot in the book, I got to actually go visit his engineers test-firing rocket engines for their orbital spaceships. So it's going to be very similar to the missile-style spaceships that got us to the moon, but, but they're going to try to build them much more cost-effectively and bring down the cost of launch to lower than it's ever been possible to get to space. In fact, NASA is looking at them very seriously and actually giving them development money so that they will then be able to charter rides on these ships to go to the International Space Station when the shuttle retires. But the International Space Station won't be the only destination because another character in my book, Rocketeers, is a guy named Robert Bigelow, who's a Las Vegas real estate developer who wants to expand his business off-planet. And he's actually building the first commercial space stations, which sounds crazy in, until you think about the fact that he's actually got two small-scale versions of these space stations up in orbit right now, and they're testing out all the life support systems and the other systems that need to go on the big system. They're ready to go probably by around 2010. What do you think really characterizes all of these different entrepreneurs in terms of their view of spaceflight and their willingness to push the boundaries? They all come from very different backgrounds, you know, different ages. Elon Musk, like me, grew up after Apollo. Richard Branson goes back farther. Uh, Robert Bigelow goes back even farther. He's, he grew up in the 50s, and you know, they come from different countries. Elon Musk is from South Africa. Branson's from England. But, but what, one thing that I've found by talking to them all is there's a real sense of idealism that, that this is something that's going to be good for humanity, to get us off planet in a significant way, not just to a few government astronauts, but really to give people the experience of their planet in context. Peter Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE, has told me he thinks of the Earth as a small crumb in a supermarket of resources. So there's this idea that there's vast, untold wealth, not just in terms of material wealth and energy, which is certainly out there, but also for knowledge, for building a, our civilization, bringing it beyond where it's been up till this point. So there's this real sort of heady sense out there. It's 
somewhat indefinable. Of course, they want to make money, but that's not their only purpose. There are lots of better ways to make money, as a lot of them have demonstrated quite handily up until mm-hmm. now. Well, and I, I think that they've got something there. I think frontiers are really good for us. And we had the Western expansion, of course, and that defined the United States as a country. And, of course, there were, there were a lot of horrors that went with it. There were people already living here. <laughs> who suffered the brunt of, of that expansion. But this is a case where there, there isn't anyone out there. We can, we can do what we need to do, what we want to do, without stepping on anyone else. And I think that's an important thing. And, and if you look even back at the Apollo program, a lot of the innovations of the 1960s, I think, can be traced directly to that, not just in science and technology, but this idea that if we can get to the moon, we can do anything. So you had people starting new social movements, new forms of art, rock and roll, theater, all these amazing things that came out of the 60s, I think, really did have their inspiration in us getting to the moon. You know, in recent times, the Bush administration, though, has uh, tried to reinvigorate its effort in uh, spaceflight. Do you think that that's actually helped, that we should try and get to Mars? It's difficult to know what the motivations are for the government programs. I, I still don't see a clear purpose for certainly getting to the moon. Originally, Bush's vision speech, as it's known in 2004, was about getting to Mars, which is something we've never done. Of course, it would be tremendously exciting to put people on Mars. But that has, over the last three years, has scaled back so that now we're just going back to the moon. And it's not clear how that will differ from what we did the first time. We're going to have the same kind of throwaway rockets that we can't reuse, landing people for short periods on the surface of the moon. I still think we lack a clear purpose. I think if the Chinese were to ramp up their program and start sending people there, maybe talk about uprooting our flags, then we'd start seeing some real movement in that direction. But I think in the absence of of competition like that, it's going to be a long, slow road. Hmm. How has NASA endeavored to collaborate now with the private space enterprise? That's an exciting part of the story that's found developing as I wrote the book, and the story's still being told. But a lot of folks at NASA were just as inspired by Spaceship One as a lot of other people, and they saw an opportunity there to tap some of this private enterprise energy to further their own goals. And one of these is to continue to service the International Space Station. Now, there's a, there's a problem here because the space shuttle is going to retire in 2010, but the new moon rocket won't be ready until well after that. So that leaves a gap of how do we get to space to service our space station. So now NASA is looking toward the private individuals like Elon Musk and Space Exploration Technologies to charter rides on private rockets, which has never been done in space, although it's very common in aviation, of course. You know, a lot of government agencies and, of course, the military will charter flights for their troops or scientists or whoever else who needs to travel. So this could be a case where the government helps private enterprise to further its own goals. Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of these uh, collaborations, certainly. Well, we are running slightly out of time, but you do end your book with a vision of what space might be like in 2034. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little about that. It's, it's really difficult to tell what's going to happen. I think that the future will be more exciting than we can imagine, but I think a, a big element of this will be getting resources from space that can help us down here on Earth. One of our biggest problems is the energy crisis. Where are we going to get it in the future? How are we going to sustain these growing populations, especially in developing countries that need energy? One solution that NASA has explored in the past, and it didn't have the resources to enact, would be to put up big orbiting solar power stations. And these would beam down solar energy in the form of microwaves. And this technology has been demonstrated, and it can be done, to receiving stations on Earth. And essentially, you would then have free energy coming in at all times 
with no additional effort. Once you put the stations up and put the ground receiving stations down, that alone, that innovation alone, which could be fostered by more and more affordable commercial space flights, that innovation alone could have a huge influence on the way we run our economy and the way civilization runs. I mean, we could have electric cars, we could have unlimited power for cities, factories, what have you. So that's one place I think we could go. Uh, certainly, I think private enterprise would be a, a big factor in driving that. That's right. I think the, the profit motive is very powerful, <laughs> but also coupled with this grand vision that is uncoupled from political expediency and the whims of Congress or elected officials. You've got some people with real vision, real business sense, and a lot of technical ability who have the desire to stake their investment and risk not just their money but their own lives to get up there into space and perhaps provide benefits to the rest of us down here. Uh, well, Mr. Belfiore, I do want to thank you very much for joining us and talking uh, about your new book, Rocketeers, How a Visionary Band of Business Leaders, Engineers, and Pilots is Boldly Privatizing Space. Thanks very much for having me. And we're just listening to Mr. Michael Belfiore discussing privatized spaceflight. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. Look at what's happened to me I can't believe it myself Suddenly I'm up on top of the world It should have been somebody play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, ready for liftoff or still grounded. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're ready for liftoff or they're still on the ground. Uh, Mr. Bill Fiori, are you ready to play our game? Okay, let's go. All right, here we go. Person number one, Barry Bonds. Well, I'm I'm sorry, I don't follow sports. Okay. (laughs) Well, maybe a good thing for him, I guess. (laughs) All right, number two is uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Ready for liftoff, why not? (laughs) He's going to keep going, he won't give up. All right. (laughs) Number three is Neil Armstrong. Ready for liftoff. Let's have him. All right, uh, number four is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Grounded. I I think that time has passed. (laughs) First slugfest on TV. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he still draws an audience somehow, though, so it's... <laughs> he does. I think it's fairly limited. Well, I, I shouldn't speak for everyone. To, to each his own, I guess. Exactly. All right. And finally, number five, the president of the United States, George Bush. I have to say grounded. I think we need some new blood in there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Belfiore, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and, of course, talking about your book, Rocketeers. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Yes, cross-linking, what is it, and what does it do to your body? Not so good in the DNA, where it prevents the genes from expression through the transcription process. Very bad for you. Hmm, and you have a district's question of the week. Small it might be, but strong the force it emanates. Hmm, dwarf planets they are, but where did they come from? Hmm. If you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You might not win anything but you won't be trapped on Dagobah. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. 